Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. Should your financial dealings be completely private or should what you do with your money be trackable by, let's say, governments or tax authorities? That's a huge debate, but it's impossible to separate that debate from a much broader one about internet privacy. And that's because most of our financial activity now takes place in a digital form and across the internet. So I'm delighted to welcome on this podcast, Dave Pratishin, who's Chief Technology Officer at a project called NIM. Dave previously worked at Chainspace as the CEO. Chainspace was acquired last year by Facebook as the basis for its new LibraCoin project. I wanted to ask Dave about the privacy technology he and his colleagues are working on and where it fits into the broader privacy debate. Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, so Dave, uh, could you please start by telling listeners what is NIM? Uh, NIM. So NIM is a privacy company which um, deals with um, problems of internet surveillance and provides basically privacy technology that can hide <clears throat> things that you might not want to reveal about your um, activity on the internet. So there, I guess in order to talk about privacy, it's probably worth talking first about, well, the internet as a whole and the technology of it and like what problems what what are the privacy problems of the internet some of them have already been solved other ones are still maybe um, st still to play for so the internet was designed in the in the, the 60s and 70s um, it's quite old and it was never designed with any kind of um, like thought of how would we secure this thing or how would we have any privacy on the internet at all because it was never designed to do that it was designed to be um, something for sharing. It was designed to be an academic tool, um, also one that could help you know, survive a nuclear war as well, which is a whole other thing. But like yeah. the actual, um, you know, the, the the real first users of the inter of of, uh, of the internet basically had no concerns with privacy. So when it started to open up in the the 90s to the the broader public, given the decision to take it from being a very closed academic network that you had to be at a university to be at, and suddenly open to the the general public. Suddenly, the internet has all of these um, issues, and, and people like had to swing into action to solve them. And this is the first kind of wave of uh, internet privacy technology took place in the '90s. And many of the same, you know, discussions that we see today about privacy actually were already live issues back in the '90s. So, at the time, uh, it's worth a lot of people don't know this or don't remember this anymore, but. Um, high-grade encryption was classed as a munition, so it was illegal yeah. to export um, in encryption technologies. So, yeah. uh, you know, like code, algorithms, all of that kind of stuff was actually um, like military-grade, you know, stuff. That it was like, I don't know, exporting a bazooka or a, a missile yeah. launcher or something like that. You couldn't do it. So there, all, there were there was this whole wave of, um, of people that were active in what we call the cypherpunk community. Yeah. Um, and at that time, they were they were saying, look, we need to have privacy controls. And the government was saying, no, we want to be able to backdoor everything. We want, you know, there could be bad people out there. We need to keep everybody under surveillance. Yeah. And the cypherpunks won it, actually. And they did it, they won it partly through kind of legal, legal means, but they did it first by almost acts of coding civil disobedience. Um, so the, the most famous example is, um, GPG, so an email encryption technology, and the guy who wrote that, it was illegal to export it, so he, he wrote it all down, he printed it out, the source code, he 
he flew to New Zealand with a book and then he typed it all back in. So that was his way around these laws. And through, through acts like that, eventually it became impossible for, um, you, you know, the restriction of these technologies basically became impossible. So, so the governments gave up trying to stop the cryptography itself. Yeah. They couldn't do it. Yeah. So, and, uh, you know, and another person, you know, active at the same time is a friend of, a friend of mine who was involved with a previous company of mine called Chainspace. His name is Ben Laurie. And he was the guy, um, I think in some ways much more important than the, the PGP example. Ben um, coded up an open implementation of, of technology called OpenSSL. So OpenSSL is the privacy technology which defends your browser connection when you look yeah. in the top of the browser bar and the little lock turn, turns green. Yeah. That's, much of that code is ultimately descended from Ben's work. So on the one hand, you could say, wow, an amazing gift of free technology. Um, it actually underpins much of the economic activity that takes place today in the world. Like if you think of Amazon, Google, Facebook, all of these things, I mean, these, and, but all, all banking systems, all e-commerce, all use this fundamental technology, which is a privacy technology to enable them. And if that hadn't happened, um, it would be very unlikely, I think, that we'd have a future now, you know, looking forward from the 90s to now, it, I think the future would have been very different. So um, the democratization of this cryptography has underpinned a huge rise in internet commerce. Exactly. In all, it's... It's helped other lots of other technologies to develop, like crypto, cryptocurrencies, blockchain. Yeah. All so all of all of the stuff has these kinds of roots, I would say. And I also, um, you know, just on a personal note, that that action by Ben of like making this um, encryption technology widely widely available to people all over the world actually is, when you think of it, also a kind of civil society activism, which I find you know very laudable and re really wonderful. Uh, because other, you know, that, that, that defends, and we don't think about it very much, but it definitely defends people all over the world from actions by despotic governments or uh, other things, you know, because not everybody has the same kind of uh, civil protections that we have in the, in the democracies. And it could be the case also that looking in the future, the democracies, we don't have the same civil protections that they have today, given some of the trends that we can see in society. So. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's kind of the backstory, I would say. Now, you've, your original question. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So, what is what is left? You know, what, what was resolved, and what you mentioned some sure. sort of privacy issues were solved, and some are unresolved. Yeah. Sorry for the long preamble. No, it's there. very it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. So, um, SSL to take that technology, um, it's one of the most important ones, so it's worth focusing on. SSL can protect the content of your communication, so it. Um, if you say, okay, I would like to connect to, I don't know, the Netflix website or to your bank or whatever, the content of what is, you know, of what you're doing beyond that is unknowable mostly to anybody who can record the traffic of the internet. So that could be your internet service provider. It could be Google, uh, because, you know, actually they own a lot of, a lot of network capacity and a lot of, a lot of your requests may go over quite closed networks actually. And if you, if you can, you know, it, the transmission of information over the, I'm just not thinking about how to explain it. The transmission of information over the internet goes physically through a bunch of linked computers that have wires between them notionally. And if you own the, the that infrastructure, you can, um, you can spy, you can, on, what's you can spy on what's going on. Yeah. 
SSL puts a layer of armor around that connection. So the, the wire that you're talking through is armored. However, SSL does not defend against um, what we call metadata. So in order to just make the request for you to, for your computer to connect to Netflix in San Francisco, let's say, it has to make a request and that request needs to go through a bunch of computers. The one thing that you can't armor in a situation like that is, okay, cool, we've got these packets of information, where are they gonna go, mm -hmm. right? So the routing information, it's called, which says, I would like, I'm a piece of information, I'm traveling through this wire, it hits a computer and it, the computer has to figure out, what do I do with this piece of information next? Mm. Okay, cool. So you can keep the content of whatever's in that packet armored, but you have to be able to say, uh, oh, this guy wants to go to San Francisco. So let's, let's pass him to a computer that is closer than me to San Francisco, let's say, right? So that's, that's the thing that you can't um, uh, deal with with a technology like SSL because it has to have the, the routing information, the metadata, and also that obviously things like the time when that information was transmitted you, you, as an attacker. So just to be clear, for that, listeners, the metadata is what? It's not the content of the, of the conversation, it's, it's things about the conversation. It's the things about the conversation, right. Such as you know, when it took place, so, yeah, where, so it was, where it was sent from and to, and... and correct, yeah. yeah, yeah. So ultimately, um, somebody can't know, um, let's say with your bank, they can't say, okay, well, what, what is Paul's password? What is, and then these are the things that, that you want to, you know, with SSL, you, you want to defend, right? It's like, what is your password? What is your session um, cookie that keeps you logged in? Yeah. Um, all of these kinds of things. Also, it defends, it depends, defends things like, um, uh, what transactions did you make? Like, did you, did you put money in? Did you transfer it from somewhere else? Did you yeah. take money out? Whatever, those, those sorts of things are also defended. But the things that when you do when you're doing your internet banking that um, people who run the network infrastructure can see include things like okay what time it was I mean obviously that's um, that can be defended against but it's you have to think about how um, they can see um, probably how many things that you did like if you stay connected to your bank for an hour and you send a bunch of stuff to it it's likely that you're doing much more banking activity than yeah. If you, I don't know, sent one request or something yeah. just to check your balance, right? So, so you can infer things from the metadata, right? And also the, the, just the, the kind of transfer of the information through the network, through the internet to your bank, it, you know, just the fact that you were talking to your bank is something also yeah. that can't be hidden as opposed to, I don't know, watching Netflix or uh, looking at Wikipedia, for example. Yeah. Those, those are the kinds of things that can be inferred. So... That's one, one level of privacy that, that I've been talking about, basically, is this thing that we call network-level privacy. So that's what I've been talking about this entire time, yeah. is um, it, you, you, people may want to um, defend against um, adversaries who are inferring things from your network traffic, for example. Yeah. Um, so that's one, that's one level of privacy. The other level of privacy that you want to uh, worry about is what we call transaction privacy. So, um, in a, let's say in a blockchain situation, just because it's a kind of hot topic at the moment, um, you might want to not have your transactions take place fully open in a public blockchain because what you know people thought 10 years ago, oh, Bitcoin, 
There's no login. There's no password. It's yeah. totally anonymous. It's, it's wonderful. A, a string of numbers and, did, and right. letters. You know, yeah. They can't know who I am, but in fact, they can quite easily know who you are. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So, so the so the net and the, the ways that you can de-anonymize uh, people are basically, effectively, two ways. One is, all right, your computer connects to a Bitcoin node. Cool. That node knows exactly who you are because if you don't do something about it, then you your IP is visible to that node. Yeah. You know all, all of that sort of stuff. Um, at at another level, whatever you do, like whatever actions that you take, um, you know you're, you're also not really private in a sense because you're only sort of pseudonymous. You have a kind yeah. of it, it's not a human based pseudonym that you have, but your transactions are very clearly linkable to each other. Yeah. And so your whole transaction history, you know, reveals things about you. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's, uh, so we deal just, 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 yeah. we deal with both of those levels of privacy. That's, that's essentially the final answer to your question. Is yeah. You asked, what does NIM do? Yeah. We, we want to deal with both levels of those privacy to help so people. So network have level and, and transaction level. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, so transaction level privacy in, in the context of a cryptocurrency would be something like a mixing service or a, some of these, some of these technologies that seek to obscure where transactions are coming from and where their, where their coins are going to, they, they mix things up to try could, and confuse could, the. Yeah, user. that's that's an example of yeah. of of, uh, of one thing that you can do. Of course, if you don't have the network level privacy, then you um, you're kind of lost from the beginning. Like yeah. you have to. You have to have the sort of full body spacesuit on. You know, if you're yeah. wearing half a spacesuit, you're you're yeah. not going to survive very well out in space. Like yeah. you're going to have some trouble. So, so let's talk a bit about network level privacy then, because uh, you in a, in an article you recently wrote and published on Medium, you yeah. gave what I thought was a very helpful description of what you do. So you talked about people walking into a street. Currently, there's CCTV camera. It can probably tell who you are very quickly. Yeah. So the next step is to go walk into the street wearing a mask, and then. Right. They can look at maybe where you've come from, where you're going to. So then you want to try and mingle in a crowd. Could you talk through those steps and how you could, sure, uh, at the network level, increase people's anonymity? I, I will. Yeah. First, uh, I'll get to that in a moment. First, I'd like to maybe say that um, there's another system that does a, a similar thing, just to just to provide a setting. Something called Tor, which yeah. many many people may have heard of. Um, the the mixnet that I'll that I'll describe right now has one advantage over Tor insofar as um, Tor can be de-anonymized if you can link both ends of the connection that's being made between your computer and another computer. Yeah. If you have, if you happen to be recording the whole internet, for example, it's very yeah. clear um, who was talking to who. So you can be de-anonymized that way. So, so this mixnet idea that I'm about to describe yeah. is, a, um, is a way of having a sort of super tour in that sense. So just to, just to explain what a tour is, but yeah. maybe people, people may know this, but so if you go from, if I go from my computer, my IP address to mm -hmm. a website, yeah. they can see directly who, who I am. Correct. But tour makes you go through a few hops, hops before Rel relays they're called, yeah. Relays, and they, they encrypt the, the traffic between the relays. Correct. So that so makes it harder for someone to work out who I am. Yeah, because your your connection is bouncing all over the world and then gets to the, the final destination. Yeah, You're saying if you have a kind of global picture of the internet, you could still work out what, what the person is doing. Yes, so actually this is called the global passive adversary in the security literature. Yeah. Um, and when this was first described to me about 15, 20 years ago, I said to my friend who was describing to me, well, that's, that's crazy, you know, no, nobody could ever do that. But yeah. actually as a result of the Snowden um, 
leaks, we actually yeah. know that this is done. actually yeah. like in in operation right now. So yeah. this is all. They can all see everything. Super yeah. clear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's not yeah. no. There's not not a question about it. It's like a real yeah. thing. So so a mixnet uh, to describe that basically is a way to defeat the global passive adversary. And yeah. they, these things have largely been theoretical, um, and nobody's ever deployed one at scale. Primarily because of this idea that I used to have that this was a science fiction thing that would never become a problem. Yeah. Um, but now we can see. Okay, well this is. Um, this is being done and it will probably increasingly be done as you have increasingly powerful adversaries yeah. and so it's, it's worth figuring out how to do it. Yeah. So what a mixnet is, is as you say, it's, 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 I'm going to use an analogy for your packet um, information as it goes across the internet. So your, your computer right now when you connect to a website or to a, a phone when it connects to I don't know an API or something like that. Um, it sends information and receives receives information in a stream. Yeah. And that gives big advantages to the global passive adversary because if you have a continuous stream of information that's kind of always live and open between you and something else, it's like it's like a string that connects you with the uh, the, the, the destination. So what what a mixnet does is it kind of takes that string and, and chops it up into multiple packets and then sends them all individually. Um, and they may arrive out of order and have to be recombined, so there's some extra work to do there. But the advantage that you get is that the global passive adversary can't um, de-anonymize you based on the ordering of your packets. So I'll use the street analogy again, because I, I, I've, I've used it a few times now and actually see people seem to like un understand it. Yeah. So take the example of a London street. So we're sitting here in uh, near Old Street. Um, on a, on a, I don't know, fr Friday afternoon after work, the streets are pretty full. So there's lots of surveillance cameras around and that's the, that's the global passive adversary recording all of the traffic through the streets, yeah. just like um, the real adversaries can um, record all the traffic on the internet. So that's kind of the analogy that we're trying to use here. Um, the cameras are always on and they can be played back at any time. So you can always like, you know, okay, well, just as a casual observer, it might not be a big deal, but it's digital. You have like a digital video file at very high resolution. You can pretty much see where everybody has gone if you're interested to, to, yeah. do, to do the analysis. It's not particularly hard to do. Cool, so what can you do? You, would, you might think, well, surveillance is impossible to defeat. Let's, it's not, not, worth, not worth it. Uh, and, and socially, that's probably true because people don't want to take the kinds of activities that I'm <laughs> about to describe here in real life. But on, in a network sense, we can actually do them and it's, it's not that hard. So um, so the first thing you could probably do is have everybody dress exactly alike in the street. So, you're, so the, the cameras are recording, but everybody's dressed up like, uh, I don't know, like Mardi Gras outfits or like, like cowls and robes. Or my, my personal favorite is the, the Stormtrooper, Star Wars Stormtrooper kind of thing. It's like, wow, the Stormtroopers all look exactly the same. Suddenly, it's much harder for the global passive adversary who's recording the street to, to pick a, okay, that one's Paul, that one's mm -hmm. Dave, th this mm -hmm. one is somebody else, because everybody looks the same. So suddenly you have a very high degree of anonymity, and um, that, that's, that's the first step that you can take. But if you do that, so the second step is, if you're wearing a Star Wars Stormtrooper uh, outfit and you're walking down the street right now, today, you would also stick out like a sore thumb. So you need company. That is, you need to have other people who are doing the same thing. Otherwise, you know, any measures that I talk about here are, are, are kind of useless. Yeah. We have a phrase, um, anonymity loves company. 
Yeah. And you can only be really anonymous in a crowd of people who are doing the same things and taking broadly the same actions as you. Mm. Otherwise, you're just a weirdo walking down the street in a stormtrooper uniform and it doesn't really give you any actual anonymity. Other than that, they can't see your face, which is you know, good, but it doesn't help you in, the, in, the, in a larger sense. So another thing um, that, that the attacker can do, the adversary can do, is they may try to de-anonymize you by, well, when did Dave walk up to the street, put his stormtrooper uniform on, we can see that, and then start walking through the street. And if, if the street is very orderly, uh, and this is kind of the Tor attack, um, if every time a packet or a person enters the street, someone else leaves the street and everybody operates fully in order and there's no kind of reordering of anything because everybody is kind of very uniform in the way they walk, like a military march or something like that. Mm -hmm. All you would have to do is count like how many, okay, cool, this packet came in here, it went these places and then it exited the street. Cool. Well, you, if you just keep an ordered count of like who, who entered and left the street, it would be very clear like where that packet went. So we introduce one, one last um, innovation, which is called mixing. And this is why we call this, these, these systems mix nets. Mm -hmm. So if you think of putting a tent in the middle of the street, so you have people walk into the tent, and they're all wearing stormtrooper uniforms. The cameras can't see into the tent. This is the kind of the trick. Uh, and when people leave the tent, they have been sort of shuffled around a little bit. And the, 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 the goal is, okay, cool. Nobody leaves in the same order basically, that they came in. I mean, you may randomly get yeah. that happen, but they all get shuffled together or mixed together inside the tent by um, just introducing very, very small delays. But so statistically, the, the adversary now has to know, because you can read your code, because your code is all open, yeah. that um, actually there's no way to figure out, you know, who went in first is has any relation to who came out next. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's, that's the basic operation of a mixed net in a uh, kind of analogy the so when we relate that back to the real world we're talking about chopping up your network um, packet your, your network streams into what, what are called packets that are layer encrypted packets that go from your computer to um, what's called a mix node they get shuffled up with other people's packets the packets all look exactly the same from the <clears throat> at the binary level there's no way to distinguish one from another and then it goes to another mix node gets shuffled again and another mix node where it gets shuffled again so three times is about enough. Um, the the uh, we have a bunch of high flight high flown academics, and they, they tell me that that's enough yeah. um, entropy they call it to make it impossible statistically, basically, for the global passive adversary to de-anonymize people based on your network traffic. And so we can do something with mixed nets that um, nobody else can do, which is defend against very very um, strong adversaries so people like the NSA or GCHQ or Google if you were if you happen to be using I don't know all Google stuff for example yeah. or th those sorts of things we, we can actually defend against those levels of um, adversaries so it's the strongest possible um, network anonymity technology that we know about okay so those are those are potential adversaries are very uh, powerful they have a lot of money yeah uh, they have they're, they're, they're massive uh, how, how do you get a technology like NIM to gain adoption? So there are people um, who are you know, interested in privacy. There's lots of... Um, so it's worth saying our ambitions are much bigger than, say, the cryptocurrency community. 
but like we would like to basically have a set of technologies. And when I say a set, I mean, there's more than Mixnets and I can talk about the other things, but um, in, we want to basically build a set of technologies uh, and fund them in a kind of incentivized structure. This is why we have the, the kind of blockchain aspect of and token aspect of our, our system, which maybe I'll get into in a bit. Um, but our ambitions are not simply to anonymize, you know, the world's cryptocurrencies. Like we, we think we can do that right now based on an analysis of the systems that we've already built and like the amount of traffic that goes through all of the, 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 the different blockchains. Mm -hmm. um, like we, we can anonymize that stuff today. Our ambition is actually to be much bigger than that. But, you know, in order to, um, to, have to sort of fund that bigger vision and just have a stepping stone to some kind of success, you can't do it all on day one. So our first kind of beachhead market is basically uh, anonymizing cryptocurrency transactions. And that should give us enough of a kind of base, we think. Um, we, we feel that there's enough of a, a desire for privacy on the part of those users yeah. uh, that they will pay some fraction of you know, uh, their transaction fees to um, basically get a higher level of, of privacy. So. That's that's our first bet, basically. It's it's. So does that mean you have to sign up the cryptocurrency exchanges, the users? How does how does that work in practice? Uh, it wouldn't have to be that we would. I mean, that would be great. Um, ideally, what we probably need to do is form partnerships with um, other other businesses that do these things. So we don't yet, for example, have a wallet partner, but a wallet would be a, a natural yeah. fit for this sort of thing. So you would basically. Um, You'd be using the wallet you do now. Presumably, there would be a, a, a toggle that you'd go click. I want to be in high anonymity mode, yeah. and that you would um, basically suddenly be routing all your traffic through the mixnet, and they would basically provide at the other end something that would decrypt that traffic and send and forward it anonymously to the um, yeah. to the uh, blockchain. But we also want to have, um, let's say, partnerships and alliances with people who are not doing blockchain stuff and maybe that have a higher frequency of traffic because the more let's say let's say we did uh, uh, I don't know authenticize now maybe a partnership with something like signal for example or yes. a, a messenger chat program like that um, that gives you a base of traffic as well that you can hide other transactions in so it's good for everybody if you actually have a large number of um, packets going through the system that's quite constant because then you know once you have that base of kind of flow through the street, if you want to say, then you've got a crowd all of a sudden, and that that then you can have other interesting things buried in there. Yeah. yeah. What's it, what are the remaining weak points in the in the mix in the mix net? Are there some uh, security um, or desired security aspects that are just impossible to reach? You can't you can't ever get complete. Um, so I'm. If you really wanted a serious academic answer to that question, I think you would want to talk to one of our academics. So um, Claudia Diaz has been working on um, Mixnets at the University of Leuven for like nearly 20 years now. Um, our other academic is Anja Petrovska and she studied under uh, my, my friend uh, George, who I had a previous business with. He was the head of computer security at UCL. Um, he's currently at Facebook's Libra, but um, he's the one who actually invented along with another friend of ours called Ian uh, Goldberg, in, in basically invented the, the Sphinx packet format that is really the base of the mixnet stuff. So the, the, if you want to really find out about the answer to that question, you have to ask them. I can give my kind of um, lowly opinion as a mere coder. Mm. Um, the, these people are all academics. Um, 
as far as I'm aware, the, the system is, as long as you have enough of a base of traffic, yeah. base it, and you, you don't make some stupid mistake in your implementation, which you know, would be my fault, um, the, the system should provide um, theoretically um, very strong anonymity. Um, and is, it should be statistically impossible for even the global passive adversary to, um, you know, to, to de-anonymize somebody based on their network traffic. Um, so in and of itself, the system is supposed to be perfect. Um, in fact, I don't know, 18 years ago when I first moved to Cambridge and met George, uh, who invented this packet format, um, I was, you know, we were chatting and I, you, know, you get to know somebody and I said, uh, so what are you working on anyways? What's your PhD on? He's like, well, you know, I'm trying to, trying to make it so that even if you have like God watching the internet and, and you, you, you want to talk to somebody that... Um, it would be impossible for God to find out who you were talking to. And I said, well, George, you're, you're screwed. I mean, your, your PhD's not going to work because, you know, clearly that's impossible. And then he described the Mixnet to me, and this is in 2002 or 2003, something like that. So it's, I, it's very funny now that um, I'm making my living from <laughs> implementing this system that I heard about 18 years ago. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, the world takes us to strange places, I'd say. So in theory, um, in and of itself, the Mixnet should be impervious to these kinds of um, uh, attacks. There can be uh, implementation uh, details that can go wrong. You could like mess up a formula here or there and that would leave you open. But in theory, if you implement things correctly, there are no attacks that are currently known against these systems. Um, the, the thing that you could screw up though in a practical sense, and now we're, now we're out of the realm of theory and into the realm of practice, is the thing that you need to be aware of about these systems is um, this, this analogy of the spacesuit, I think, is a very interesting one. So you could put the body of the spacesuit on, and let's say that's your mixnet. Uh, so you're defended fully at the network level. But then if you, I don't know, you, you use the mixnet, and then you go do something where you, I don't know, tweet, you know, in your real name. It doesn't matter that you went through a mixnet, because the transaction that you just made yeah. is completely, it's very, it's very clear what... Yeah that you did something, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the helmet of the spacesuit. That's the transaction security part. So the, the kind of, that intersection or that locking in of the helmet of the spacesuit onto the body of the spacesuit is very, very important. Like if you, you have to defend um, your users at the, all of the parts of the stack. You can't just go like, well, I have the greatest transaction secure, security in the world, which is the kind of um, approach that we've seen to some extent, a lot of the, the privacy technologies that we see in, in respect to blockchains today, um, people talk incessantly about zero knowledge proofs and, you know, oh, well, I'm super anonymous and all of this. Yeah. But if you don't have something that will defend you at the network level, yeah. then you don't actually have the privacy that you think you do. And, but, and conversely, you could say, wow, I'm using a Bixnet, but if you do something really stupid and identify yourself with, in a transaction, then again, you have a, a problem. I'd like to ask you about the, the token economics that go with your mixnet technology in a second. But first of all, can we talk about the potential downsides of introducing sure. this kind of technology? Because if everybody is is allowed to be fully anonymous and they let's say they have anonymity just for their financial transactions, we, we um, you know you could see a, a kind of economy in the future where no one can collect taxes anymore. Uh, sure, you know, yeah. If the society breaks down in a sense. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And what are the what are the cons of the, of the potential, you know, very powerful uh, financial anonymity technology? 
I mean, there, there's all there's all sorts of downsides. So you you could you can you could, they're easy to imagine. Uh, the thing that I ultimately I guess I fall back on in my head is, um, I'm from the 1970s. I'm old, and in the in, during the Cold War when I grew up, we had this um, kind of feeling that wow, the, our governments were telling us it would be better to be dead than to be submitting to the awful surveillance dictates of these you know, communist bastards who want to subjugate us and, you know, turn us into this totalitarian society. And maybe I kind of soaked that up when I was a, when I was a child. And when I look back, you know, we didn't have like massive surveillance technologies in the seventies, you know, so like it was just like, well, we have a good society and therefore we are, we're able to come to a social contract, which is, you know, a, a good one. And we don't need surveillance in order to enforce that. And yeah. like, that's, I think that's kind of, I, I guess at the, for, at the root of my approach to all of those kinds of things, when it comes to more, you know, prosaic details, like, okay, well, how, how, how can people collect taxes or things like that? Well, okay. That might need to change in a, you know, in a world in which, I don't know, the mixnet and, and, uh, you know, the, the anonymizing token triumphed, for example, um, there were certainly different tax, tax regimes at different points in history. If you look back, if you walk around London today, for example, and you see um, an old house and you see a window that's bricked up in it, yeah, um, do you know you know what yeah, that is? Yeah, yeah, sure. The, the window tax, and I mean, right. the way you're describing it takes me immediately to the conclusion that you should tax. If you're going to tax anything, you should tax land because they, they, that can't be you know, sure. You can't. There. You can't. Move you you it, either so. you either have it or you don't. Yeah. Right. So that so yeah, there could be a, a very much easily a, a change yeah. in the structure of taxation. Yeah. I could imagine. Um, uh, and we're very far from a world that, that's like that. But yeah, you, you, you know, there are other ways of doing these things which have been yeah. done in the past. There could be new ways that nobody has thought about yeah. before that could be done in the future. So I don't feel like uh, the technology that we're producing is going to like lead to the, the you know, some kind of Mad Max future in which, yeah. you know, there's lots of super yeah. doom buggies and people are killing so each other. Basically, the, the, the global passive adversary, however you want to yeah. imagine it, has taken a huge amount of power without really saying what what it was doing and and it's time to try and correct that correct I, I i think that i mean from my from my own perspective i guess through the early 2000s i broadly felt that the I, i'm not like a privacy fanatic there are some people who are just like well every you know you know you maybe you've met them but um there are people who take a very very hard line on these things i'm i'm probably towards that but i'm not like super fundamentalist about it or anything but in you know during the during the course of the two thousands, it felt to me like broadly the kind of um, compromises that had been made were broadly I was broadly okay with. I wouldn't have thought, oh yeah, I need to really get on this and try to try to fix it. After the after the Snowden revelations, that I, I I had a real sense that okay the social contract has been broken. It's been broken by the global passive adversary, not by me. And uh, you know at some point it becomes. Um, the right thing to do to, um, to, to think about this stuff now. Um, I mean, you know, in, in, in the kind of the tail end of the Snowden revelations, there were, you have people in, in the NSA who were publicly saying things like, yeah, we kill people based on metadata, for example. That was like, yeah. that's an actual something that somebody really said who's in yeah. charge of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you, know in, you, you see examples in the news all the time um, with uh, most recently, the thing that made me really blaze up again was um, the climate change kids, the school protesters. They were put on they, their their organization, um, Extinction Rebellion, which is a very 
you know, it's explicitly nonviolent. It's like a, it's like a, the nicest kind of civil disobedience organization that you could ever think of. They're like a nice bunch of kids. They're going to block Oxford Street with a boat every now and then. And they're, they're like referred to, um, you know, they're put on a list, which basically puts them in the same category as like jihadist um, terrorists. And, you know, that's going to have real effects on some of those kids. If that, if that kind of thing, um, you know, swings into action, like in, in a way that it could, that's that's a very serious um, social change, I would say. On again, once again, on the part of people who don't, who you would expect would have our best interests at heart, and yet yeah. it doesn't necessarily seem like that's the case. So, I think it's worth at this point having maybe a broader conversation around some of these issues, and also, you know, just like Ben made SSL in the '90s available to everybody, maybe it's time to make some more powerful technologies available to people as well. Yeah. So. Um tokenomics the, the the way that you get yeah. tokens in your project to I, I, as I understand it to incentivize usage and to try and develop the the the, the economic model that goes with it how, how's that going to work so it, we're still working it out so about uh, where the, the the place that we've come to is we certainly know right now that um, Just trying to think of how to phrase this because uh, I have a whole bunch of things going on in my head. Sorry to sorry to zone out there for a second. Um, well, let's, let me take it back. So yeah. we're we're sitting in the consensus building in yeah. Old Street in London, which is consensus is a is a is an Ethereum linked yeah. incubator. Correct. Yeah. Uh, started by one of the main early protagonists in the Ethereum yeah. network. So you 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 have a link to them. So we're. Maybe we could start with explaining how that works. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, uh, our our uh, fearless leader Harry, our our, our CEO, he's uh, he he somehow managed to score us a place in this wonderful office, basically, and it puts us within a community of, of like-minded people, which is yeah. re really really nice. Um, I guess the the one thing to say is we can, in theory, anonymize Ethereum transactions. We can also, and we can do that through a transaction security mechanism, which I haven't really described yet. And we can also anonymize the network layer of those transactions as well. And that, but we are um, not tied to any specific blockchain. So we're not attempting to be like, I don't know, to anonymize only Bitcoin, but we, we could probably do that. Or we're not anonymizing only Ethereum, although we, we can do that as well, or any other technology. Um, we're attempting to build an incentivized infrastructure that will allow people through micropayments, basically, to pay for um, private privacy-preserving systems. Um, there's a bunch of use cases that we could um, do. So, you know, things that we think at some point that we would like to make. So first, I'll kind of talk about the value that we could bring to to people, and then I'll talk about okay, why would they, right. how how would they want to pay for it, why yeah. would they want to pay for it. Yeah. So, you know, we could have a super VPN, um, and that may that might be with a mixnet, or it might be with a different technology that um, we're, we're but that's something that we think we can do, basically. Um, and so that would be a VPN that you, where you didn't need to trust the VPN provider, which you do right now. Yeah. Um, they don't know who you are even, and you are using this VPN um, to do many of the same things that you might do with a VPN today, but you don't have that, you don't have to give them your credit card information, which identifies you fully. So you can basically take anonymized network interactions mm -hmm. and you know have a much stronger level of privacy and, um, you know, still get the same benefits of a, v of a VPN. Um, we can do things like cryptocurrency anonymization. 
we are our token uh, anonymizing technology um, is actually very general purpose it could be used to anonymize things like medical records for example mm. which i especially in the u.s context i could imagine i'm from canada so I, i'm you know i don't have a full you know psychological view into this but i, I can understand that passing private data around for example between you and a insurance company that you might possibly want to you know to use you, you might not want to reveal who, who you are or uh, aspects of like of giving them your full medical record with your name on it but you might want to say hey I've got these conditions like what, what would it cost to get um, insured things like that so we can do a bunch of quite amazing things that haven't really been possible before at both the network level and the transaction level um, we think that um, the, one of the major deficiencies in privacy technology thus far, and this is our kind of a gamble of the whole company, is most of it has been done by people who have very strong ethics and very good intentions. And I'm one, I'm one of those people, like, and I have friends who are those people, so I'm, this isn't a criticism, but it is the case that when you, I don't know, run up, fire up a Tor node, that it costs you money to run it. Yeah. And um, so you do that because you're a good person and you are providing privacy for other people. Yeah. Our and it really earns you unwanted scrutiny from uh, yeah. authorities as well. Yeah. So, and so our gamble is, what if it were possible to have a, a, a similar system that have stronger privacy properties uh, and could do a bunch of other things as well, but when you fired up that node, you would actually be getting paid, um, both covering your costs and maybe a bit extra yeah. to provide that privacy for other people. And the system would then respond to um, issues of supply and demand, which Tor maybe has more trouble doing because it's a kind of a gated entryway system where you have to know somebody to, to you know, get, in, get into the network and all of this kind of stuff. Um, so th the idea is basically to have an economic system which will say, oh, wow, hey, the system is actually running over capacity right now. We're gonna start to lose quality of service, which is another problem with these kinds of systems typically. Um, if it can't respond to ex to expand capacity, suddenly nobody wants to use it because it's really slow. And by the same token, if you um, if you are providing poor quality of service in a voluntary system, there's no you know you don't get kicked out. People just say, well, you know, he's trying his best, and you know, mm -hmm. well, okay, well, it didn't really work very well today, but maybe it'll work better tomorrow. So we're trying to provide this incentivized system where you are rewarded for, um, let's say, taking actions that will help people's privacy, and also you are re uh, penalized for quality of service. So notionally, you know, as a node operator, you put some money on the table, mm -hmm. and if you provide good service uh, and uh, people are using the system, then and they're presumably paying for these services in some way or other, um, maybe through their wallet integration or a b bunch of stuff like that. We can we can imagine quite a few different business models. Um, that money, that pile of money on the table will grow if you provide good service yeah. and if you provide bad service, the system will actually take that, take money away from it. So you have a real incentive to, um, defend your pot, try to make your pot grow and, you know, provide good quality service. And we're hoping that that can, um, rapidly ripple out and actually, um, make these technologies, uh, very accessible to normal people because tech cryptography, unless it's. Unless it's done like SSL, like so, I would say SSL is like a great example of like, cool. It's in your browser. You go to a website and it protects you. And yeah. and there's a whole set of stuff behind that that nobody yeah. that nobody knows about. Yeah. Um, that is like working twenty four seven to to defend you from network level attackers. Um, 
the, the, the bad example is something like GPG, which is, you know, I had a friend uh, yesterday say, hey, I want to send you a GPG message. And I was like, what, do you hate me? Like, well, I have to, like, I have to do all of this stuff. Like, that, that, that is like very, very painful yeah. just to receive this tiny bit of information from you. And it was just like, oh, come on, man. Like, yeah, you know, I think so, I learned how to do it once, and then yeah, to, and, and of course, you, a day I've forgotten how to do it. Yeah, it's like it's like recompiling your Linux kernel. Like you yeah. could do it, but like, yeah. why would you do it if you didn't have to? It just yeah. doesn't doesn't make sense, yeah. you know. So, yeah, the, the, that's broadly speaking, we want to have this incentivized system uh, to provide privacy um, based on people running uh, a couple of different kinds of nodes. One is a mixed node, so it does this traffic mixing. And the other day, the other is called a validator node, which will take care of other services, things like directories um, that are needed to run the whole system. Like, hey, who's in the system? Uh, things like um, staking, things like a currency, things yeah. like, um, uh, and the, the 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 production of these cryptographic credentials that are anonymizing, which is the other the other main aspect of the technology that we're working on right now. Mm. Yeah. So this implies the creation of a NIM token, which which yes. is which is distributed to the people providing the nodes and providing the other services associated with the network. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So to you, it's what's a, the likely timeline? What's what, when is this? Well, going to I've been I've been conditioned by twenty years of software production to never give hard deadlines for, yeah. um, um, you know, when 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 something's going to happen. I can say that we started, you know, the main production of this code in, broadly speaking, in September, and we have a running version of all all parts of the system. At this point, um, well, all the main kind of, um, we have at least code for all of the main algorithms that's running right now. We need to, you need to bang a few things around, we need to change quite a bit of it so we can see how it works in, in, in actuality now. Um, I would expect that by the summertime, broadly, we would be looking at having pretty much the full system sort of working. I wouldn't depend on it for anything serious at that point because it's still going to be, then we have to subject it to attacks. We have to think, okay, are there technical attacks? Are there cryptography attacks? Are there economic attacks on, on the system that may make it unstable and like not, not a good idea to use? So we, we, I would expect that after the summer, we'll spend a bunch of months you know, towards the end of the year and then maybe, maybe slightly into next year, um, just making sure that it's really, really, really solid and that it can be depended on for the kinds of guarantees that we want to give people mm -hmm. because it would be irresponsible to sure. not do that. So that's the, that's the broad timeline. And, wh and where is NIM in terms of its funding rounds? How, how well funded are you? How long can you keep going? Yeah, so we've, we've we completed one round of funding uh, sort of in the, I guess in the fall uh, or, yeah, around there. We, we're, we're good for a while at the current level, we, but it would be nice to, um, like we can do what we've just said, I think. Uh, it would be nice to um, be able to hire a few more uh, coders from my perspective. So, uh, I, so I'm, I'm the CTO, I'm in charge of like actual like engineering production of this thing. So yeah, it would be really nice to be able to go a little bit faster and you know maybe take a, a slightly wider approach than we are able to right now. So uh, like we're building the core technologies, but it would be wonderful to have a couple of people working on I don't know, graphical interfaces and that kind of thing as yeah. well, which we don't have yet. So yeah, we'll be doing another funding round fairly soon. Yeah. And, and just returning to the beginning of the conversation, the demand for, or the, you know, the global need for privacy technology, now how far are we along? And it's been a couple of years now, well, Snowden revelations came out three or four years ago. Yeah. A year and a half ago, people became aware of what was going on with Facebook's data that was being resold to mm -hmm. third parties. You know, how, how far are we along in this is it still a kind of a snowball that's picking up? 
uh, momentum and, 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 and weight and going, you know, it's going to be a massive issue for the next decade or two. Can you put things in, in a kind of perspective? Yeah, if, I mean, when I, I guess the, the thing that I think when I ponder the future of these technologies is, I mean, I, I throw a question back to you first. What percentage of your daily communication takes place over computer networks? Uh, it's a very hard question to answer because I have a, a two two daughters who always tell me to get off the computer. So, uh, okay. but I would say you know, probably seventy eighty percent. Yeah, you know, it's. I mean, for me, I, certainly it's crossed fifty percent. I, I don't know how. I don't know actually know what my, my own percentage yeah. would be, but these. I mean, that that what that means is that for the foreseeable future, while we still have a civilization. The likelihood is that all of our techno, all of our, um, a, a large fraction of our communication is going to take place over over these computer networks, and so therefore I think that that this question of surveillance, privacy, you know, the, the the balance between those things, and like how you would do it, is going to be a live question for quite a long time, and broadly speaking, I think that there are effectively two answers to this question. One is the communist China model of the, um, the state actually operating a full like surveillance system with facial recognition, full network transparency to the, to the government, um, uh, linking that to actions that take place in the real world, so a whole social credit system, all of this kind of stuff, or you have strong privacy technologies. It's very difficult to backdoor um, privacy technologies to just have, um, you know, access for the nice people in the, in the world. Like that, that most computer security experts just say that's, that's for the birds. It's not going to happen. So you kind of socially, we kind of have a choice, which of those, which, which way we want to go. Do we want to have a full surveillance society or, or not? And, you know, we're trying to make our kind of contribution to that. So we also think that that's probably economically quite a good bet in the sense that like, if you could have, I don't know, if there had been a kind of economy around SSL from the, you know starting in the mid '90s, yeah. well, what would it look like right now? Um, it, it's it's a huge value you know generator. Uh, however, you you know it might not have been possible at the time to do that, but maybe if if now it is, we think there's there's a lot of value there. So yeah. Dave, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, cool. It was really nice to talk to you, Francis. listening to this new money review podcast the world of money is changing fast we see new stores of value like cryptocurrencies new ways of paying each other like contactless and digital wallets and new ways of recording ownership new money reviews articles and our podcast can help you stay on top of what's going on if you'd like to support our work you can make a one-off donation or a regular payment details of how to do so are on our website newmoneyreview.com at the bottom right of our homepage.